So this morning, the reflecting on the way it is, this statement, the way it is, is, is a reflective thought because it's not, uh, not telling you anything. It's not telling you how it is or how it should be, but it's a suggestion using the thinking process to help us awaken and observe rather than just give us positions to take on issues and giving us ideas and definitions. So the, the way it is it stops the thinking mind. You have to stop trying to make something, get something you don't have, or get rid of your feelings in the present, or whatever, but just observe. It puts you in the, it, well, what is the way it is? What, what should I do next? What, how do I know the way it is? And, you know, maybe you'd like me to tell you, uh, somebody, an authority, to give you the answers to the questions and solutions to the problems. And if that's the, what you want, that's the way it is, this feeling of wanting to be told, wanting security, definition, authority, something from outside to tell you the truth, to tell you what to believe in, how to live, how you should think how you should feel. But when, when we're reflecting, then this statement, this, this thought, the way it is, at least in my own experience, reminds me of just awaken and observe the way it is. How can I expect you to tell me the way it is? You know, I can tell you how it should be from the ideal level of how you should be as a, as a bhikkhu, as a siladhara. You know, how the, a good, what a good bhikkhu is and a good siladhara is like this and good monk, good samanera, good nanagarika, good layman. Then we're talking about ideals of how things should be. Now notice this, uh, this, uh, this, the way things should be and the way it is. Uh, and then to just reflect on the difference, the ideal and the reality of this moment. And so the reality isn't, uh, you know, it can be pleasant, painful, neutral. It changes. It's not, there's nothing stable and uh, clearly defined in the present. Where ideals, are, you know, are clear definitions. The ideal samana is uh, 
you know, always the best. Humble, kind, generous, diligent, selfless, compassionate, a bad monk is, you know, self-centered, uncaring, uh, greedy, lustful, rude, unkind, and so forth. That's another, and that's that's, uh, when we go to the other extreme, from good to bad, we get the negations of the good. But the way it is, it's like this, that just in this reflection of observing, being the, the witness, the knower. Right now the body's like this. Now I can't, I can't, uh, I just can't know how your body's feeling at this moment. But I can, I can certainly be aware of how my body is feeling at this moment. It's like this. By reflecting this way, I, beca- I bring attention to the posture of sitting. Sitting uh, on this seat is like this. So just by reflecting on the way it is, it's not a complaint or judgment or anything else, but it's awakened attention just to the experience of, of this body sitting is like this. Breathing, anapanasati, breathing in, breathing out like this. So just by noticing the breath, observing, you know, just the breathing, inhaling is like this, exhaling is like this. That seems rather banal and uh, unimportant in terms of ideals and how things should be you know, according to, you know, the ultimate goal of realizing Nibbana and and, uh, freeing ourselves from defilement. Because those those are aspirations, goals to attain. But this is, this is awakening, observing, being the knower of just the reality of sitting and breathing is like this. Now the body is uh, <coughs> easy to focus on because it's a coarse condition. Now it is a clearly defined form. So then when, when, you, when I observe just the experience of sitting, I feel I notice the pressure of body sitting on this uh, seat where the back, my back, the, where my hands are, feet. Become aware of, of tensions in it, maybe of stress or tension. So in, in establishing, in, in being 
mindful, let's say we use the, the present, the, the reality of the present, the posture, as you've heard me say many times, there's four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, the breathing, inhalation, exhalation, Be aware of the mood, the, the emotional uh, state that you're recognizing. How do you feel right now emotionally? You feel sleepy, uh, happy, sad, dull, confused, peaceful, Doubtful, miserable, whatever. It's just like this. So these statements about happy, sad, elated, depressed, peaceful, unpeaceful, these are thoughts, these are descriptions. But we're not interested in, in, the, in the words or the quality, but just being able to recognize the mood as it is, whether it's not a matter of how it should be, but it is like this. So this brings in the four foundations of mindfulness, the, the body, the feelings, the, the jitta, the state of mind. Foundations of mindfulness. Gayanupasana, Vedananupasana, Jitanupasana. So Gayanupasana is the body, Vedana is the feeling, Jitta is the mental state, emotional quality. Now, when we're, we are using the Four Noble Truths, and this, this dukkha, as the, the First Noble Truth, there is dukkha, there is suffering. So this is some kind of feeling, isn't it? It's the, it's the jitanupasana, very much bringing attention just to the feeling of they of sadness or <coughs> feeling of stress or <coughs> loneliness, loss, grief, whatever, anxiety is like this. And so they, we, you know, using this, this, uh, ordinary experience of dukkha, we, we investigate it. And this is the, the three, the, uh, the second, third, and fourth noble truths is, is this way of investigating. Not through analysis, but through intuitive awareness, through, through observation, recognition of the way it is.
So in Tamanupasana Saribhata, it's, it's using this Dhamma, this, the way it is, <clears throat> it's a way of using thought, taking these, this uh, paradigm of the Four Noble Truths and applying it to experience. It's a skillful means, a way of, of noticing, observing uh, forms of clinging, attachment, identity that is the cause of suffering that is brings us in always into this sense of worry or loneliness sense of lack of missing something incomplete longing obsession They've got the <coughs> what we call these Dhamma teachings, the uh, Four Noble Truths, and these this is, you know, very skillful because it, it, it points, it's bringing, a, helping us to pay attention to something we tend to resist and ignore or uh, reject in our lives, the experience of suffering. So being attached to anything, to any condition, is the cause of suffering. Blind attachment, ignorance, there's always this avicca, ignorance of the Dhamma, the desire that arises from this ignorance and the attachment to that desire. So, so these, are, these are to be observed, you know, it's not, it's not telling you that there's anything wrong about desire or attachment, you sh it's not coming from an ideal position that you shouldn't be attached to anything, or you shouldn't have any desires. That's the ideal, how things should be. What a good monk, a good nun shouldn't be attached, should be free from attachment, free from desire. That's ideal, but the reality isn't that way, is it? It's like this. Attachment is like this. Wanting something and being caught into this wanting, into this desire for something I don't have is like this. Longing for something I don't have is like this. Or not wanting is desire, isn't it? Not wanting to have this mood, this obsession, this habit, this emotion, not wanting uh, the world to be the way it is. So not wanting is like this, the way it is, and wanting, not wanting. So it's a way of exploring, observing. Now this, uh, the ability to observe and witness is not a personal accomplishment. It's like, it's more like
paying attention. It's, it's, it's a natural state, it's not a created state. To awaken isn't, isn't some refined uh, state that you get after sitting in meditation and developing refined concentration. It's natural to awaken. It's not something fantastic or difficult. So then, the, yesterday morning I talked about the unconditioned and the conditioned. Atipikaway, ajatang, aputang, akatang, asankatang. There are bhikkhus, there is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, unoriginated. So there, so there is suffering. In the first noble truth, isn't it? There is dukkha. But then the Buddha said, there is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned. So then this, this is a reflection on the way it is. There is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned. Now that one can attach to some kind of metaphysical theory about that. You know, like we believe in the unconditioned and, uh, and hold to some, some ideal of, you know, something, some place, some state that is unconditioned and we believe in it. But this isn't, the Buddha is not asking us to believe. This is not a doctrine or a dogma. This is pointing to reality, to the real of this mo- reality of this moment. So at this moment, here and now, what is unconditioned? uncreated. And so this is like inquiring in that you're asking this question. And whatever you find is some, you know, is it, you know, you try to think about it and figure it out, you're caught in the conditions realm again because thinking is a condition. So you're not aware of thinking, you're just thinking about the unconditioned. And that gets you nowhere, gets you confused. It's not a matter of, of uh, trying to reason it out. But to take the, the suggestion, there is the unconditioned. And then awaken to the present. Pay attention. So the awareness, satisampatanya, is our ability to, is this gate, the door to the deathless, the escape hatch. So then the Buddha said, if there was not, if there is not the unborn, unconditioned, uncreated, there would be no escape from the born, the conditioned, the created.
So then, because there is the unborn, unconditioned, uncreated, unoriginated, there is the escape, there is liberation from the born, the conditioned, the created. So this, this can only be mindfulness, isn't it? The unborn, uncreated. That's the only possibility, the only reality that that we don't create. We don't create mindfulness. And that we, you, you might try to be mindful. You grasp some idea of what mindfulness is and then try to be that way. That's not it. Mindfulness is our ability to awaken and observe. It's not a condition we create. It's a reality we recognize. So, awareness, mindfulness, And when I, now for me, sharing my own experience, this awareness then, I notice this, what I call sound of silence. This kind of resonating background, tone, or whatever it is. Now in the, Mindful. I don't create this. It's not a like a sound, like do re mi fa sol la ti do. It's not a, a sound that arises and ceases, but it's like a flowing stream, isn't it? It has a resonating, scintillating, flowing quality. And I don't create it. Not not something out of my imagination, but it's recognizable. So this is done through observing, through, through attentiveness. Now if I'm looking for it, you know, when I've talked about this sound of silence, it's, uh, people start imagining some kind of mystical sound, like some kind of angelic chorus or some ethereal kind of sound. You can imagine, you know, that sound, uh, uh, the heartbeat of the universe, the cosmic vibration, these kind of words give it a, a kind of, you know, an aura of specialness and remoteness and mysticism. And so it, we start imagining it as something. And if then when you try to, to find what you imagine, what happens, you know, you you're expecting something, or you're 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 you think it's something that you imagine a, a, a blissful ethereal sound, a sublimity of of beauty that you're somehow missing at this very moment, <clears throat> and that you've got. If you pay attention, you'll find it. Now, this is a thinking process, a way of we wind ourselves up with with expectation, through 
through imagining, uh, you know, using these thoughts, the mystical sound as some kind of remote uh, and hopeful attainment by very advanced meditators, maybe. And you can say, Arjun Samedo, he's been a monk 40 years, it's easy for him. And you know, you can, you can think, I have to spend 40 years, 40 more years trying to find this cosmic vibration. And so you, you're creating, uh, you know, into a problem. You're, you're imagining, you're fantasizing, you're expecting something that, to find something that you imagine. And that's where this, uh, in the Four Noble Truths, it's uh, all about letting go of conditioning. So the second noble truth is, is observing what attachment is. The result of attaching to things, of identity, seeking your identity with your body, with your thoughts, your memories, your emotions. Now that whole, that scenario, that sense of a self, uh, unquestioned, unexplored, uninvestigated. So the encouragement is to investigate this, this self. What is a self in terms of, of uh, Dhamma, Sakya Ditti? So this is the first fetter. Now fetter is something that binds us to birth and death. There's ten fetters, and they're, they're like manacles. They're, they're the things that bind us to the mortal state. They're called sanyojana, translated into English as fetter. So it's like something that, you know, like being handcuffed, chained to the wall by these fetters. And when you really examine sakyaditi, it is, uh, it is a horrible fetter being bound into memories uh, identified with the, with the physical body as my reality. The five khandhas being attached and, and, uh, and then we call it identity with this. It's like we're being bound to, to mortality, to death itself. We're chained, manacled to the Lord of Death. So then, by investigating, not, we're not trying to just resist and try to get rid of the fetter, some act of rebellion, because that's another fetter, isn't it? So trying to resist and, and uh, destroy the fetter, but to know the fetter. So this, is, this is the reality of this moment, is we're in, a, in this natural state of knowing. Consciousness is knowing. Being a conscious entity, a human being, is mean that we're knowing from this position here, knowing the way it is. Not knowing everything about everything, but knowing the way it is. From sitting here, from breathing, from feeling, 
from the whatever state it's in, whether it's pleasant, painful, or whatever, it's not the not important. It's the knowing. It's like this. And this is awareness, sati sampachanya. So the unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, there is the unborn, the uncreated. There is an escape from the unborn, uncreated. And that's through, the escape then isn't through resisting or running away, but through knowing the way it is. Now this is like the, the panya vimuti path or developing wisdom, discernment. Because uh, when we don't discern things, when we just react and caught in views and opinions, ideals, we're, we're bound into the realm of death again. We're tied to, to death is our fate. And, and being bound into birth and death is, is frightening. If, if we are, if I am this body and, and this personality and these, and, I, and these memories are really what I am and so forth, these things are, this is so unstable, so untrustworthy. And you just, you know, I can feel happy or sad just to, somebody smiles or frowns at me. I'm not sensitive. Somebody says a kind word to me and I feel happy. Somebody insults me and I feel angry. So the personality is a very, you know, is, is something to understand, to know, Sakya Ditti. And, uh, and of course there's teaching this uh, teaching of anatta, non-self. So mindfulness then is the, is the gate to the deathless, the escape hatch from birth and death, but it's not an, an annihilation of birth and death. It's not putting it all behind and rising above it all and, and rejecting the conditioned realm. It's not an attack on the conditioned realm. Because that's, that's another dualism, isn't it? We're taking sides with the unconditioned. And uh, we're looking down on the conditions as, well, they're just, you know, a Nietzsche, Dukkha, Nata, they're imperfect and they born and die and they cause of suffering and and that is more, that's the same problem, isn't it? Still the self, the ignorance. And we're, you know, we're, we're, we've got this ideal of the unconditioned that we, I'm the unconditioned and these conditions are not me. This is still an intellectual process one, bind, one can bind oneself to. And this is not liberating either. So, you know, now intuitive awareness, using this word intuition, 
you know, the intui an intuitive moment is not a dis doesn't discriminate. It's not a, say, it's not a, applying values to the present moment. Not saying it's good or bad, right or wrong, but it's intuition is a, a natural state, natural ability that each one of us has to receive this moment as it is, whatever the conditions might be. Uh, that, that's mindfulness. Sati Sampachanya. Intuition. When you think about it, then you then you define it as a, I feel good, I feel bad. It's a pleasant moment, unpleasant moment. But in in discerning, it's we're just discerning the way it is. The conditions are like this. The body's like this. The breath like this. The mood like this. The sound of silence like this. Now if you if you take an interest in the sound of silence like uh, some people question the validity of this because it's not mentioned in the scripture. So they think it's one of Ajahn Sumedho's wacky ideas or some peculiarity that he has. or It can be dismissed, and I'm not asking you to believe in it or anything, make anything out of it. I'm just pointing to, you know, sharing what I've learned and how to use this. Because when, you, when you're aware of this kind of flowingness, this, the, with this uh, sound of silence, it's like a stream. It, it has a flowing quality. It has continuity. Where sounds, other sounds, uh, arise and cease. It's, uh, it's like space. It's background. It doesn't obliterate or destroy anything. You know, it's not something that that stands out and grabs your attention and demands, you know, that you, anything from you. It's just, it's subtle, so it's a matter of recognizing it. Because, uh, you know, meditators that have been practicing for years, you know, have recognized it, but they don't know what to do with it. They just, they talk to people that practice various methods and they they uh, they dismiss it or they they don't know what it is or uh, you know they just ignore it or just project the perception of impermanence onto it or they think it's tinnitus or they label it as maybe something wrong with their ears or whatever talking to meditation teachers, very few have ever, ever understood how to use it or its value. Yet they all 
and been aware of it. But because it's not mentioned in the scriptures, then of course it's no, it doesn't exist, does it? If it's not written in the book, not defined in the Pali Canon, then it, it's, it's not, not, not the Buddha's teaching, therefore we can't use it. Is another position that we take, isn't it? We, we, we become orthodox Theravadan Buddhists. Now being an orthodox Theravadan Buddhist, is another identity, isn't it? That's the word orthodox Theravada. These are not, this is not Dhamma. These are concepts that we project, we've created. The Buddha never taught Theravada. And he never taught Buddhism. The Buddha was not a Buddhist. This whole word Buddhist comes after, you know, somebody that believes in the Buddha. But the Buddha was pointing to Dhamma. Now this is, this is the, uh, you know, when, when we're developing, cultivating awareness, we're awakening to Dhamma, not to Buddhism. We're awakening to the way it is, rather than trying to interpret the way it is with concepts we get from religious scriptures. So we, we don't develop any confidence in our own direct experience. If it doesn't fit into a concept, then it doesn't exist or we've got to just reject it. So this is where, you know, in meditation is encouragement to trust awakeness. You know, to learning to to, this is when you try to think about yourself and about your ability to be mindful and your achievements and, and attainments in meditation. You know, we, we end up with another Sakyaditi position. I'm not, a, I meditated for 20 years now and I haven't even, I haven't even attained the first jhana. I can't even do Anapanasati. I've heard people say this. Uh, I can't even do Anapanasati. And uh, because they, you know, they're expecting something, they're trying to attain and achieve. So it's, ra so it's rather sad to see, see people who, who really sincerely applied themselves diligently to meditation techniques and practices and then feel, you know, they, they don't get what they expect or they can't do it according to the way they interpret what they should do. And this is, of course, because they haven't broken through the basic delusion of a self. They're still on, it's my meditation practice. This technique given to me by a great master, you know, I believe that my meditation master said if I practice this technique I should get enlightened. And so the whole thing is, you know, the master knows I'm an ignorant person, the master gives me the technique, I perform the technique for 20 years, and I don't feel enlightened. 
Why? Because the delusion's still there. The sense of a self, me practicing in order to get something. The master knows what I need because I'm so ignorant and have so many emotional problems and defilements <coughs> that I can't trust myself at all. And the master knows what I need. So we, we look to the master. This is still Sakyaditi, isn't it? It's all about, I'm this ignorant person, the master is the enlightened one. He or she knows what I need. I don't know. And the master told me how to meditate, so I do that according to, a, to the instructions. So this is all thinking, is this creation of, of a self. Sakyaditi is is that you're bound, you're fettered to this manacle, to the self, to the illusion of a self. So I ask you, why not break down the illusion? And right at the beginning, why, why meditate for 20 years with an illusion as your foundation for practice? It might be good delusions, Master might be enlightened, might be good. It's all good stuff. But, and that's not the point, isn't it? It's not saying there's anything wrong or bad about it. But as long as we're bound to conditioning, where, you know, there's no, we, we don't see the way out. We, we don't see, the, we don't know the escape hatch. We just get caught in that cycle, in the samsara of conditioning, birth and death. And so awakening to the way it is. Uncondition there is the unconditioned, the unborn. And so in this Sound of silence, you know, I don't create this. It doesn't seem to have any beginning and ending to it. It's like a stream. And you look at a stream, a river. It's a flowing thing. Where, where does it, you know, you can, you can, you know, try to find the source and, and where it ends, but the reality of this moment is not trying to, to find the source or the end, but the way it is in terms of conscious, the conscious reality of this moment. So this, uh, when, you're, when you're standing by a stream, you hear the sound of, of the uh, stream. So it has a flowing sound, doesn't it? And yet it doesn't... Um, you know, it, it's, if, you, if you just concentrate, put your attention on the sound of a flowing stream, what happens? The, you know, the thinking process stops. You're not trying to write poetry about it or make it into anything, into a kind of personal experience. But just being with the, the flowing sound is like this. Now, when, when you 
put yourself into this flowing sound, it does, the flowing sound doesn't create a self. It's not, it's not, you can't, you know, you can't, uh, doesn't, unless you project self onto it, you know, make it into something personal or whatever, but if, if you start, it'll, if you just listen, pay attention to the sound of flowing water or the sound of silence, the sense of itself vanishes, it, 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 it disappears. So noticing, this is discerning, isn't it? This is sati-sampachanya, sati-panya. You're observing. When I accommodated to the sound of silence, I, I, the sense of separate identity falls away because I'm not thinking and I'm not creating, uh, I'm not operating from that, from what I like and don't like and right and wrong, true and false, like this. Now this you can observe, you can know for yourself, test it out, don't believe me. I don't want you to believe me, I want you to find out whether maybe I'm a crank, could be all wrong. But don't dismiss me unless you find out for yourself. And this, then the, this, uh, no, wh what brought this sound of silence into my awareness was a kind of investigation of the self, because uh, I could see, this was many years ago, that I just endlessly thought about myself. On a, you know, had, I was an obsessed, I had an obsession uh, about myself as a person. And, uh, and the concept of anatta, you know, didn't, I couldn't figure that out. Anicca dukkha anatta. Because the sense of a self, of me, my body, my life, my feelings, this seemed to be reality. This was my reality. Uh, if there's anything real, it's me. Because I'm sitting here and feeling hot or cold or peaceful or confused or whatever. And so the, the self is, seems very real. And just to dismiss it with anatta, there is no self, doesn't work. It's not meant to be just an annihilation of self. Just believing that there, is, there isn't any self is another sakyaditi problem. I believe I don't have a self is still sakyaditi, isn't it? Still a, the sense of a self that believes there's no self. So that, that's a trap, isn't it? You can't get anywhere with that. So then, awakening to the self. What is a self? Questioning, what is sakyaditi? in terms of this moment, here and now. 
And so investigating, investigating, observing, discerning. There's awareness. Say, right now I'm aware of the sound of silence. Now I've been practicing this way for so many years that this is, this is just, this is not a practice anymore. This is the way it is. But the, the self disappears. There's a consciousness, I'm not unconscious. And I'm not in a trance. You know, I'm still fully present. Uh, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind still operating. Normally. And then the then maybe, what, what is he talking about? Is this, re- is this real Dhamma or is this just Hinduism? No, we can, you know, Buddhists are arrogant about Hinduism. It's Hindu, and that's a put-down, isn't it? And if it's Hindu, it's not Buddhism. That's another discrimination, isn't it? That's Sakyaditi again. You know, so you, you become sectarian. By you become a Buddhist, and and you don't want anything to do with Hindus, Hinduism. So that's the, the going to the, you know, why the religious groups don't get on with each other very well, or compete, or misunderstand, because they they bind themselves to conditioning. These religious conventions, they're all conditions. They're created by us, by human beings, ignorant human beings. So, when the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths, this is a, a, a way of awakening us, awakening an individual to ignorance, what ignorance is, the, the cause of suffering, attachment to desire, Identity with the conditions. And by observing this through awareness, then we, we see the problem. We, become, we, we have the insight into the cause of suffering. There's attachment, clinging. So then, it, then, the, then it, the, the insight is to let go. Release the grasp. Take the fetter off. Because the fetter is really, you know, our own grasping. That's the problem. Ignorant grasping of condition. So you, in this uh, awareness, there's discernment, there's intelligence. So in this stillness, this sound of silence, there's consciousness, still I'm not unconscious. There's consciousness with awareness, discernment, intelligence, a universal intelligence. It's not acquired knowledge about anything. It's not what I've learned through study, but it's, it's uh, might as well call it universal intelligence, or panya, the Pali word.
So that's not a personal attainment. You know, I can't, if I say I'm a wise person, that's back in Sakyaditi again. Because Sakyaditi arises through attachment to thinking. And that I am this person, I am this body and this person and these memories and I am like this. I'm a Buddhist monk, I am a male, I am 72 years old, <laughs> I'm an American Brit. I said this the other day and somebody said, you'll always be American to me. But it doesn't matter, does it? on that level, those are just choices, personal choices or whatever. These are, these are not ultimate realities. And that's Sakyaditi, you know. It's, a, it's identity with nationality, with gender, with sexual orientation. Now people are strongly identified with their sexual orientation. You're heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual. This is Sakyaditi again. It's a sense of self, identity, identity with a condition. So in this ability to observe and know is like this. It, Knowing is not denying anything, it's not saying I'm not any of these things, I'm not an American, I'm not British, I'm not this, I'm not that. But it's the ability to observe the thinking process and its, and its absence. Like in, when you rest in a stream, isn't it, you... To, now there's the sound of silence, the thinking stops, but there's discernment. And then I can, when I start thinking, I'm aware of, you know, thinking and non-thinking. There's discerning when there's thought and when there isn't. It's like this. Non-thinking is like this. Thinking is like this. And then thinking, you know, just habitual thinking is where I create myself as a, as a Sakyaditi person. I really believe you know, that I am this person, that I am these conditions. This is my commitment. This is, this is how I define myself. This is my reality. And it's all about me and my feelings and my past, what I've done, who I am, my attainments, my failures, my virtues and vices, on and on like that, it goes, you know, just uh, whirls you around into this sangsaric vortex. And it is suffering. To be a person, it's always, uh, you know, is suffering. To be somebody, to define yourself according to conditions 
These are never going to satisfy you, no, even if you put it on the superlative level. How many of you can, can see yourself only in the superlative, superlatives of, of the positive? I am the best, I am the greatest, I am the champion, I am master of the universe, king of the world. I'm better than the best. takes a lot of effort to sustain that one. And then there's always something that's going to prove you're not the best. So just by, by you know, sustaining obsessiveness around positive thinking, you know, doesn't, you still, uh, the Sakyaditi is still there. You're caught in the samsara. So then the, the Buddha's compassion is awakening to the way it is. It's not trying to become the best anymore, but it's like this. The sense of myself is like this. I have to think. I have to attach to memory. Very interesting. Uh, uh, I was in the Navy 50 years ago, American Navy, and I was on this ship, the USS Yancey, aka 93, and Ajahn Panyasaro has kindly found this. You can find all the history of these ships on the internet. And so he presented me with this several pages of the, what happened to this old ship that I was on. And so it brings back memories. And photographs, and it was, uh, it's now sunk into a ship graveyard off the coast of North Carolina. And he even had pictures of my old ship lying at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And then the memories flood in. You know, you see this ship, the form of this ship. Now, the, if you looked at the pictures, it probably wouldn't mean anything to think some kind of American naval ship, so what? But after I lived on this ship for two years, in a very important part of my life, a sense of self arose very strongly while I was on this ship. You know, it's about from 20. 21 to 24. So, uh, years of age then. So then the uh, this ship was, uh, you know, quite an experience. So it's a very formative period, and the and the lot of memories come from that period. So when I look at this, the photograph of this ship, as I remember it. And then seeing it sunk into the Atlantic Ocean, it's lying on its side, and that's a, it's a graveyard for old naval ships off the coast of North Carolina, and the, it's for environmental purposes to make these reefs for sea life. So there's this kind of sea life forming on this old ship. 
Now that's memory, isn't it? So just seeing, and I don't think about this ship very often, but then when you, you know, it's been so many, 50 years ago, so then the, the photograph brings back the memories. Memories flood in from just, uh, you know, because I, the, that was a form strong formative period where I experienced a lot of suffering, personal suffering. Now putting that into Dhamma then is memory, isn't it? We have a retentive memory, so I remember, I can remember 50 years ago. I, I don't remember everything, there's selections you know, daily routine on the ship, and what I had for lunch back in 1955 uh, on uh, this day in July. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> Probably some, they didn't have very good food either. Remember that. Now then, memory is very selective, isn't it? You don't remember everything, but you remember the, the highs and lows of experience, the successes and failures. But memory has an effect on consciousness. So remember some pleasant moment is like this. Remembering some unpleasant event is like this. You know, so because we, we can suffer a lot through our memories. And we live in, the, in a realm of memory. The Sakyaditi is all about memory. So we create, I'm, I was in the Navy 50 years ago, and my ship is now, you know, sunk off the coast of North Carolina. <laughs> my life, my biography, my, this, you know, this is all sense of sakyaditi. Now, putting that into context of dhamma is uh, not saying I, there was no self on the ship and, and there, you know, this is, and just dismissing it as just memory and doesn't matter. Discernment allows me to feel the, you know, the memories, the pleasant ones, unpleasant ones are like this. I'm not just dismissing the whole thing as just a Nietzsche Dukkanata as a kind of way of just pushing it aside, but willing to, to observe when I remember this ship is like this. Certain events on the ship, memories of experience are like this. Pleasant ones are like this, unpleasant ones. Well, this is the way it is, isn't it? That's how we, you know, we create ourselves through this attachment to memory. We give it a reality it doesn't really have. When you examine memory, it's ephemeral, isn't it? You can lose your memory. You forget all kinds of things. And I have only selected memories about what happened to me 50 years ago on the ship. I don't remember everything, 
So then from this point of what I call the unconditioned awareness, then I'm able to look at the condition. You have that perspective. You're not looking at from the conditioned view, trying to find the unconditioned, but you're actually taking refuge in the unconditioned to observe and know the conditioned as the condition, the born, the created, the originated. When you put that into proper perspective, then the conditions are what they are. They change accordingly you know, to other conditions. So when, when I see this picture of the, of the ship, it brings up these memories. Because the conditions are there for, for those kind of memories. And that's the way it is. Conditions arise and cease according to other conditions. It is, well, it's a budget da. The condition realm is like that. The sense of my self-worth, whether I'm feeling good about myself as a person and confident on a personal level, depends on conditions to support that. Depends on being appreciated and respected and, and uh, admired and feeling successful and feeling uh, that I'm a good person and that I'm a worthy person. And then when the conditions go the other way, somebody starts uh, blaming me or abusing me or criticizing and saying that I've, you know, I'm all wrong and I've, I'm not a real Buddhist and on and on like this, then the, then the personality changes according to the conditions. Personality changes according to whether I'm feeling healthy and vigorous or weak and sickly. Now that's just the way it is. The personality is, 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 a, is a very unstable, ephemeral, conditioning that we need to recognize. And so that's why it's placed in that sequence of the ten fetters as the first one, because it's the basic problem, really, the biggest blinding delusion we have that bind us to the samsara. And so the, then the Buddha said it very clearly, that there is the unconditioned, and this is awareness. Awareness of the condition, awareness of the personality, awareness of the memories, awareness of the sense of myself, how I feel about myself. I can recognize, I'm aware of, of whether I feel good or bad or about myself as a person. So what is it that is aware of the personality? And then this is a self-inquiry, inquiring. So this is non-self, this awareness, non-self, anatta. And then the self is in that perspective, uh, attachment to thinking, to memories, to views, 
I define myself, I can define myself with, I'm a, a right. We have, a, in, in any religious practice, there's a lot of righteousness. I'm going way over time. <laughs> and so the, the righteousness, I'm right, you're wrong. Or I'm wrong, you're right. And so this is, this is uh, we, one can live in a realm of, of determining to be right. And I've got to be right by proving you're wrong if you don't agree with me. So we get into wars and conflicts. So this can be observed, you know, attachment to right and wrong, good and bad, as a sakya ditti. So I want to uh, encourage this way of reflection to, to, to get to the root of suffering rather than just muck around with suffering for 20 years and then feel disappointed because, you, you know, you're still confused and suffering. <laughs>